Father, we thank you that we can actually stand in this place tonight and declare that we are yours. But more importantly, Father, we thank you that you are ours. That from day one, you sent your son into this world so that we might know you. Father, as the church community here right now, we ask that we would be a community that does step out of the boat, that we would be a community that truly does walk in water, not because it's humanly possible, but because we walk in your strength, trusting in you always. So Father, right now, as we come to listen to your word, I ask that you would help us to have hearts that are ready to receive, spirits that are ready to, to, to hear from you and be empowered by you as we leave this place later today. Would this be a community so trusting, so daring, the world truly knows that you are at work here. In your mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, it's great to be with you. Why don't you grab a seat? And it's not in my notes, but I was just thinking as we were singing that song about stepping out onto the waters, I was, I was thinking that we, we often think about Peter and he stepped out of the boat and he started walking on the water and then he looked at the waves and he got distracted by the wind and then he sunk. And we sort of make a deal about that sometimes. But I was been thinking, and I've actually had this thought, I think, when I was about 10 or 12 years old when I heard that passage preached in another country. I've been thinking, what would it have looked like if everyone in that boat got out together? You see, Peter was the one who, who stepped out and he had faith to trust, to walk towards Jesus. And I just wonder, what would have happened if everyone got out together? Would they perhaps have walked for a little bit longer on the water? Would they perhaps have got all the way to Jesus? Would perhaps the miracle of rescuing Peter not be needed at that particular point in time? Would perhaps Jesus have proved that he is more than capable of rescuing not just one person, but everyone in that surrounding? I wonder what the world would look like today if everyone in this church got out of the boats, if we had the trust to put our feet onto the waters, to walk. And that is definitely not the start of my sermon at all, because the start of my sermon is supposed to be, hi, my name's Nick Harris, and it's wonderful to be here with you. But I do want to throw that challenge to you guys, that as we, as we go through Scripture today, and I'm already abandoning the notes, as we go through Scripture today together, would you consider what it might mean to step out, step out both by yourself, but to also step out knowing that we, we're gathered together as God's community in this place. We're gathered together, all of us in this space. And as we leave the space, yes, we've been scattered, but we are still connected in so many different ways. What would it mean to walk in the world today together in such a way that perhaps God would do something miraculous through this community? What would our Sundays look like? What would the homes of our neighborhoods look like? What would the workplaces look like? Not just if Kerry did this, but of all the local churches around the world. We sing these songs, and these songs are designed to fill us with faith and with hope and to remind us what happened in Scripture. But what happened in Scripture is not complete. It's to be continued, and it's to be continued in our lives here today. Hey, uh, I'm really, really excited to have this opportunity. Over the last few weeks, if you've been journeying with us, we've been looking at our vision statement, which is to be a flourishing community of hope transformed by God's love. To be a flourishing community of hope transformed by God's love. And today I get to introduce a two-part series looking at our mission. And I want to do this by beginning with a little activity. I wonder if you notice that on your chair you have a white piece of paper it wasn't some new COVID-safe chair-cleaning device for you. There is a purpose behind this. I want to teach everyone something. I want to teach you how to make the best possible paper planes. And if you're online, you're welcome to pause. I haven't got paper for you, but you can pause and you can go to wherever you keep paper in your house and grab a piece. Because this is a really important lesson. It's also a little bit of a test. It's a coordination test. 
It's a listening test. And dare I say it, it's an intelligence test. So this is how you make the best paper plane. Make sure you follow each instruction carefully. What you need to do is you need to take the top right-hand corner. You need to fold it down so that you make a triangle at the top and you have a rectangle at the bottom. Oh, I love the sound of rustling paper. It reminds me of being in the classroom many, many years ago before everyone used computers because education is changing. I want you to take that top corner of your triangle and I want you to fold it down to the right-hand side of the triangle you made so you now have a point in the middle. When I'm doing artwork with my daughters, this is the framework of my house. Add a chimney, a door, some windows and a tree, and it's an idyllic family house. Put a dog next to it and you've got our house. Maybe it's your house. What you now need to do is from the point in the center, you need to fold the piece of paper in half. And it should look something like this. Then there's some keys to aerodynamics. And at the college, we have an aviation course. And I'm not the teacher of it, so I don't know the keys to aerodynamics. But I know that if you fold the paper down so that you have fairly large wings and then open up again, you have for yourself a pretty impressive plane. Now, if you want to know how impressive the plane is, this is what you need to do next. You need to consider the eyeballs of everyone around you. You've got to think about this really carefully. And then you've got to, you guys are so slow. My goodness. Do you know, I say that the youth are all finished. It's their parents that are slow. I'll just wait you for half an hour and then I'll pray at the end we'll call the sermon done. Because my word, look, my five-year-old is done. What is going on here? All right. I can't wait any longer. So what we're going to have to do is you take this amazing plane and let's test it. Ready? Three, two, one, let it fly. I said throw the plane in such a way that people's eyeballs are protected. You should not throw planes. But that's okay. I wanted to see what a huge crowd of planes would look like flying. Now here's the thing. If you followed my instructions perfectly, you just became one of my paper plane disciples. My last instruction to my paper plane disciples is don't touch the plane for the rest of the sermon and the music afterwards as well. If you didn't follow my instructions perfectly, that's okay. You're just a disciple of yourself, which is absolutely fine when we're talking about being paper plane makers. But when we're talking about being disciples, we tend to talk about being disciples of Jesus. And when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, it is uh, someone who's made a decision to learn and follow his teachings and to imitate Jesus in his lifestyle. Now, that's a pretty big call. And part of our church's mission statement is to be and to make disciples. And this is what the church staff asked me to sort of start unpacking today for us, to be and to make disciples. And I want us to think about this a little bit, and we started quite unpredictably today, and so we're going to keep things a little bit unpredictable. I want us all to be a little bit vulnerable, and as we're a little bit vulnerable in this space, I want you to do something radical in church. I want you to answer a question by talking to the people around you in one minute. Now, some of you got it easy because you're sitting next to your family, and some of you are like, oh, oh, I'm sitting next to a stranger with a chair between me. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, being a disciple is risky business. Here's the question that I want you to kick around. Of all the commands that Jesus gave, what do you think the most important commands are? 
So of everything that Jesus taught his followers, what do you think some of the most important teachings of Jesus were? Turn to someone next to you. I'm going to give you exactly a minute to kick that idea around. Go. All right. I heard a bunch of good answers. Again, I heard the good answers from the youth section. Uh, you adults need to lift your games. But when I thought to myself, what are some of the most important commands that Jesus gave, three instantly sort of just jumped into my head, and I want to quickly run through them with you guys. So one day Jesus was out teaching when someone came up to him with a trick question. For Jesus being posed trick questions or tough questions was absolutely nothing new. People were often trying to get him to answer something incorrectly so they could make a fool of him, or in such a way that his answer would create division and stop people from following him. And so on this occasion, which has been recorded in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus was, Jesus was asked this question. He was asked, all the laws, of all the laws and all the commands, what's the greatest? Of all the laws and all the commands, what's the greatest? Now, what's important with this is that this is a massive trick here, right? Jesus, he, he lives in a, a Jewish society and comes from a Jewish background where they had been debating for uh, a couple of centuries, a uh, thousand years actually, uh, the over 600 different commands they had and as to which one was the most important. And how you answered that question put you into a school of thought. You either belonged in one camp or another camp, and if you belonged in one camp, everyone celebrated, but if you were in a different one, you debated the differences through there. It's like me standing up here and saying, hey, which football team do you support? By doing that, I can put you into a box. You see, you either like football or you don't. You're either someone who's patriotic to WA or you aren't. You either support the Eagles or the Dockers. One of six camps, really, really simply through there. And really, if I ask that question, who do you support in football? It doesn't matter which box, liking football, not liking it, state patriot, state traitor, eagles, it doesn't matter. It's not that relevant in the space. But for Jesus, if he were to answer the question at that point, he is going to either have people following more intently with him or he's alienating a crowd. So he's posed with this trick question, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus, maybe you remember his answer, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And at this point, the crowd there, a whole bunch of them are going, mm, that's the answer I gave. Maybe you gave that answer. But there's a bunch in the crowd that are going, mm, 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 mm. of the 600, there's something a little bit more important. But there is something radical, because we've heard this, if you've been going to church for a while, you've heard this so often, that you forget the radical nature of Jesus' answer. He doesn't stop there. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is extraordinary. We miss it because we've heard love God, love others, yada, yada. 
But you've got to think about it fresh in the context. What Jesus is saying to this group is, is of all the laws and exaltations of the prophets, which everyone was really versed in and debating, of all the commandments, those already recorded and those yet to be written, of all the rules and instructions given, whether they are societal rules and instructions, whether they're recorded in the Old Testament, whether they're about to be written in a bunch of letters in the New of everything, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be my follower, this is what's required of you. Love God, love others. And if you start to really extrapolate that answer, it becomes the foundation of absolutely everything in our lives. And think about it, you're at home and a situation arises. You're at work and you're conflicted in a relational situation with some colleagues. How do you respond? Well, the framework we're supposed to use as followers of Christ is, okay, well, as a follower, my response needs to somehow demonstrate that I love God. My response needs to somehow demonstrate that I love people. How am I going to do that in this space? And I don't know if you hold that at the forefront of your head every single time you're responding. I know for myself, I get it wrong all the time. And it irks me because I wish I wouldn't make the mistake of failing to love God and failing to love people as I've been called to. It's important. I don't know what you said in your one-minute conversations about important commandments, but there's another one that Jesus gave. It's recorded in a series of teaching captured in Matthew chapter 5. In this teaching, Jesus, he's, he's, he's talking to a bunch of people who have no political power. They've got no financial clout. They've got no social capital. No one in the group that he's speaking to in Matthew 5 had any realistic cho- 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 chance, any realistic scope to influence anything in society. Jesus was talking to a group of nobodies. I don't think I'm talking to a group of nobodies. When I look at this group, I do see an element of financial clout, and I do see social influence, and I do see ability. So we already have a huge advantage on Jesus' crowd, but he's talking to a crowd who didn't have these things. And he says this, do you remember what he says? He says, you are going to be the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And when I read Scripture, I've said this time and time again, I think it's really important to place yourself in Scripture and to imagine that you're one of the audience members hearing these words for the very first time. And I suspect that if I'd been standing there at a hillside and he was talking, and I was with this group, I would have gone, you are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Mm, Maybe not. I think if you ask me, who can you influence, Nick, I would say, well, I can probably influence a a subset, a subgroup. And in this context, there's probably a handful of you here that I think I could influence. But the whole church, all of Perth, all of Australia, all of the world, I would have said, Jesus, sorry, mate, you're preaching bad. It's just not realistic. But Jesus would have pushed back at me and said, no, 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 no. You are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's speaking to a group with no political power or obvious talents, and he's saying, you are going to change the world. Did they change the world? Well, that group he was speaking to were the early followers of Jesus, who would be the early leaders of the church, who would become some of the most significant people in history. So it seems like Jesus got that prediction right. 
And he said, you're going to change the world by doing two things. Salt. We think of salt as this beautiful condiment that we you know, place on our roast potatoes and our hot chips. That's not salt in his society. Salt was a food preserver. And so Jesus is saying this. He says, your presence in society will keep culture from rotting. Your presence in the world will keep the earth from becoming worse than it already is. So he's saying, as you begin to subscribe to my values and to my teachings, as you begin to live as a follower of Jesus in your culture, you are going to be like salt. You're going to be a preservative, not just to your culture, but eventually you're going to grow in number and you're going to become a preservative to the entire world. Jesus said, be light. You need to live your life in such a way that when people look at you, they will know what God is like. You need to live your life in such a way that people will see God's grace and God's truth in you. Jesus is saying to be a disciple, to be a follower of me, is to, to live a life that is overflowing with love for God and love for people that plays out in our social and our private spaces in such a way that the best of society remains and the worst of society is directed towards something better. I want to say that once more. We need to let this sink in. Jesus is saying in these commands that to be a follower of me, to be a Jesus disciple, is to live a life overflowing with love for God and for people, to have a love that plays out in our social and our private spaces in such a way that the best of society remains and the worst of society is directed towards something better. Third command that jumped to my mind, maybe you talked about it earlier. I don't know if you've ever thought about your final words. If you knew you were about to depart this planet and you had some really close people around you, what would your final words be? Do you remember Jesus' final command? Go tell the world all I have said and all I have done, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, go, make disciples. It's this radical call to action. So how do we live out this call to action at Kerry? Well, as an organization, G uh, the Kerry group, and, and there's a lot that can be said about Kerry. We, we're so much more than the church here. We're, we're education institutions. We're, we're hospitality locations. We're childcare. As a Kerry group, what we do is we develop missional platforms that offer our local communities services. That's what we do. This is our way of loving and serving a local community. This is our way of being salt and light because we recognize that at the end of the day, the broader community that we live in is radically falling out of relationship with Jesus or never had a relationship with Jesus. And so we're trying to develop spaces where we say, we are going to love on you to preserve the best elements. We're going to offer an education that is different to other educational institutions around this area. And we're going to create a watering hole where you can come and you can have good food and good company, but hopefully experience service from our staff teams that you experience love in a slightly different way. And we know how important it is to work, so we're going to take care of the most vulnerable, which is your little children. And we're going to help educate them at those really early, pivotal, foundational years. We're going to try to educate them and love them in such a way that points you back to Christ. That's, that's the way Kerry as an organization lives out that call to go. 
As a church, we've been talking about our vision, which is to be a flourishing community of hope transformed by God's love. Today, we're looking at our mission. And mission is something that we do both individually and collectively. And so we are called, or we've got this idea, we commit to the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus who love God, who love people, and who serve in God's mission. And that's something that can be done at just a group level if you want, but I think when it comes to faith, there's something deeply personal. And I think as individuals, we've been called to go on to mission, both alone and together. So if discipleship is loving God, and if, if, sorry, if being a disciple is someone who follows God, Jesus, his teachings, who loves God and loves others, that's a disciple. What is it to make disciples? What does it mean to go out and make disciples? I'm thinking a little bit about how Jesus lived his life and how he went about making disciples. And I noticed that in the first instance, Jesus began making disciples with an invitation. Jesus began making disciples with an invitation. I don't know how often you think about the way you do invitations, but when Kat and I are throwing out invitations, we go through a little bit of a mental process. So if one of our daughters is having a birthday party, we will ask ourselves, well, what do we value? Because they'll have some requests that don't align with our family values. We'll ask ourselves, what do our daughters want? And then we'll throw out an invitation around some sort of birthday party theme. If we're inviting people around to our place for food, we run through a similar process. We'll, we'll ask ourselves, so what's the mode of communication that the people we're inviting use? What are their family dynamics? What are the ages of the people that we're inviting over? Who do they know that we know? And how can we make this a really comfortable, social, relational space? What dietary requirements do they have? What's the best time together? And what's the best location together? When we send out an invitation, maybe we're just crazy and like way too organized. But when we send out an invitation, there's a process to go through. Because invitations are complex things. When Jesus was giving out invitations, he was quite selective. When Jesus stood at the edge of the water and he called out, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. Jesus didn't walk onto a beach and scream out to a bunch of people and say, hey, anyone fishing? Great, you should come. No, no, that invitation was a personal invitation, first to Andrew and to Peter, then to James and then to John. Yes, you read through scripture and, and there's lots of invitations that Jesus puts out, but they're evangelical invitations. They're invitations to come see something or to come experience or to try something. But the invitation to enter into a discipleship relationship, is it something that Jesus gave out to 12 individuals? And of those 12 individuals that he invited into a discipleship relationship, he journeyed more closely with three people in particular, Peter, James, and John. You see, being and making disciples, so being, following Jesus and his teachings, making disciples, that's an action. It begins with making an intentional invitation to enter into a relationship. Uh, that last command captured in Matthew 28 that Jesus gave, I love the essence. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. That word make I wrestled with it for a little bit because I thought, how do I make a disciple? I'm not God. I don't, my spirit doesn't reside. How do, how do I? And again, I thought, well, what does it mean for me in my family context? What, what does it mean for you? And I realized actually that, that fundamental truth, that disciples aren't born. 
So within your context, your children or your grandchildren or your, your spouse wasn't born a follower of Jesus because disciples are made. And so as a father, I have a role to play in discipling my children. I have a responsibility to teach them about Jesus. I have a responsibility to pray over my daughters and my wife. I have a responsibility to live a spirit-filled life in their presence so that somehow in our household, they would know about God, they would experience His love, they would experience the move of His Spirit so they might have the opportunity to respond to His Spirit and to what Jesus has done and say yes as they accept Him into their life. You see, I have a responsibility as a parent to help make disciples by creating an opportunity for that to happen. And we journey together really closely in that space. The key idea is followers of Jesus are made. And we, each of us individually, has a significant role to play in making disciples. When I was at uni, I, um, I had friends, um, which is a good thing. It's good to know people. One of my friends, actually many of my friends at uni, but one in particular was a really strong atheist. I remember we had lunch together one day, which we had many, many lunches, but I remember having lunch with them one day, and we were debating an idea that came up in class. And I have no idea how it happened, but somehow that debate turned into me sharing my testimony, an evangelical moment. And it was a powerful conversation between the two of us. It was a conversation we experienced or encountered ever before. And as the conversation was wrapping up, we were heading to two separate classes, so we were about to split. And I felt like God was really prompting me to say something, to do something. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. So I said, well, if you haven't read the Bible before, which he told me, why don't you just try that? See you later. Yeah, probably not the way to end that moment. But I was young. I was young. You see, evangelism is often about a moment. Sometimes that moment results in a decision for Jesus. At other times, evangelical moments are they, they're part of a journey towards Jesus. And evangelism is different to discipleship. Making disciples is a relational journey that draws people into Jesus and then actually empowers them to go and make disciples of Jesus themselves. And I've often reflected back on that moment with my mate at lunch at uni. And I've often asked myself, what would be the outcome of the story if I had ended the conversation this way? I'm looking for someone to read the Bible with. How about tomorrow we read together over a jug of beer? What would the end of the story be? How about tomorrow over lunch we get a jug of beer and we read scripture together? You see, we were friends. He was easily in my top 12 close friends. At that point, he was probably also in my top three. We both liked beer. We saw each other often. We drank often at uni. Not time wasted, mum and dad. He didn't know Jesus. I did. He didn't know Jesus. I did. We spent time together, so the incarnate element of being a follower of Christ, him seeing my life and what I valued, that was already covered off through our friendship. All that was missing in our friendship was that intentional and faithful invitation to explore Scripture together, that deliberate step that would add a discipleship element to the friendship. Now, there are so many different ways that we can do discipleship. Literally, you can talk about it for hours on end. 
But this year at Kerry, the church staff have been throwing this idea at us all year. They've been saying to us that what we need to do is invite our non-Christian friends into reading Scripture with us. We need to invite our non-Christian friends into reading Scripture with us. It's been said from the stage a lot. And I've been thinking about this challenge. Because I think this challenge is simultaneously one of the hardest and one of the easiest things we can do as followers of Christ. The act of inviting someone who doesn't know Jesus into reading Scripture requires incredible courage. It is a step of faith. It is a getting out of the boat moment. It is, I am going to attempt to walk on water. There's no sugarcoating it. It's awkward. It's like going up to your crush and saying, I'd like to go out with you. You are vulnerable in that space. It's like going to an interview and saying, I want this job and I'm qualified. You are nervous and vulnerable in that space because you do not know how the people who are interviewing you or how the person that you'd like to, you do not know how they're going to respond in that moment to you. Oh yes, the invitation is simultaneously one of the hardest things we have to do because it requires us to step out. But it is also incredibly easy because the invitation into discipleship should be one with someone we know who does not know Jesus. And so once you've made the invitation, that process is as simple as ABC. Ask them how their life's going, read the Bible together, and then commit to doing it again. You see, you've got to throw out the invitation. Hey, it'd be great if we could read the Bible together. There's a, what about Monday, 7 a.m. at Timber? Let's grab a coffee and some breakfast before work, and then let's read some scripture together. You throw that invitation out, and maybe, just maybe, they'll say yes. And if they say no, if it's a good, robust friendship, it continues. But if they say yes, you've got over the hard part and you're now in the easy part. You just do what you normally do as friends. A, ask, how is your life going? Because that's the foundation of friendship, knowing what's going on in each other's spaces. B, you've got to get to it. Open up a part of scripture that you've prayed over and you think might just have a little bit of good conversation. C, commit to doing it again. Hey, we're going to meet at this park again. We're going to meet at the work lunchroom again. We are going to do it again. Keep A, B, C. And all you have to do in between that gap is pray. Because at that point... Your responsibility is to love God, love others. you just got to keep living the life you're called into, slowly being transformed by the renewing of your mind as you grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You've invited your friend into a relationship that you've always had, and now you keep that relationship going with that intentional invitation to read together. Church, I wonder, I wonder what would happen across this area If each of us over the next few months prayerfully considered someone in our top 12 or even our top three that didn't know Jesus and threw out an invitation, I wonder in the next few months what would happen. So what have I said today? Being and making disciples that live by faith is a call to follow Jesus. I've said that disciples love God and people I said the disciples are salt, preserving the very best in our world, and light, pointing people to the hope we have in Jesus. I've said that a disciple is someone who is intentional in making other disciples, and that at Cary, we're suggesting a way we do this is by reading scripture together, followed by A, B, and C. So let me pray together as we consider what it means to be and make disciples.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the one that always steps first. Do you know that when we mess up in the garden, you step back into it and you seek us out. Thank you, Father, that when we need restoring, you're the one to close us. Thank you, Father, that when we walk away from you, you follow with open arms, asking us to walk back to you. And Lord, as we journey through life today, I thank you that we never, ever journey alone. That we have the opportunity to journey with you. And for, for anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord, I ask that they would take that crazy, radical, awesome step of inviting you into their hearts. For those of us that know you in this space, Father, I ask that we would be a people transformed by your love that truly would be salt and light in a world that so desperately needs to know you. And right now, as we stand in this space, about to go back into your time of music, as we sing about who you are and what you've done, I ask for each of us that you should place names in our mind and in our hearts. Names, Father, of just one. It's the name of just one person that we know that doesn't know you. Lord, we ask that you give us a name of one person that we know that doesn't know you. And that you then fill us with the courage to invite them into a discipleship relationship where we explore who you are through Scripture. One name. Courage. Step out. Lord, we ask that you give this to us. In your mighty, mighty name I pray. Amen.